This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. I'm April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I sit down with my guests to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. Chris Dombrowski is a poet, author, teacher, and river guide who works and lives in Missoula, Montana. His latest book, The River You Touch, was recently released, and I was keen to hear more about its behind the scenes. In this episode of Anchored, Chris and I discuss poetry, why it matters, our relationship with water, and how each of us process our inner conversation a little differently. This episode of Anchored is brought to you by South Dakota and their incredible hunting opportunities. In South Dakota, hunting is a shared legacy, something everyone can be a part of. That's why they're focused on making their fields a welcome place for everyone. See how at www.huntthegreatestsd.com, where you can hear stories from sportswomen and learn what makes South Dakota the world's pheasant capital. While you're there, check out public land maps, hunting blogs, and seasonal information for one unforgettable fall. Learn more at huntthegreatestsd.com. I was born and raised in Lansing, Michigan, East Lansing, to, um, later on in life. But um, yeah, born at Barrow Hospital. March 12th, 1976, um, and raised pretty much in the bottom of the mitten. That is Michigan. Um, Lansing's just, you know, kind of a, a crumbling post-industrial general motors town. And most of my, most of my family had lived in the Detroit area working in some way, shape or form, um, in the, in the auto industry. Um, and so how I ended up, um, out here in Montana is a mystery to all of them. Is that how you met Steve? No, 
I met Steve at grad school in Missoula um, at University of Montana in the early 2000s. He was here studying nonfiction. I was here studying poetry. And um, yeah, it was a while, I think, before we realized that we were both from Michigan. Um, there, you know, there's a there are many Michitanans out here um, in Montana, people who were born in Michigan and um, and migrated west. People often ask, I mean, why does it happen so often? And I think it's like the things that folks love about Michigan. I mean, if, if you're an outdoors person, the things that one loves about Michigan, um, one finds in... Montana in um, in greater volume and uh, with fewer people pecking at the edges, right? So, um, yeah, Steve was actually the first person to ever take me hunting. I was telling this story the other day. Um, we went duck hunting together, and um, we were jump shooting ducks out of my fishing raft. And um, I think it was the first duck I ever shot. It landed on this rock bar, and it was still flapping around you know? And, um, I said something like, what do I do? <laughs> and he said, I usually wring their neck. And, um, and that was, um, uh, that was the first, first duck I ever ate too. I remember Steve cooked it, um, duck larange. And, um, I thought to myself, this is fantastic. This, I do this, you know? Um, and so that, uh, that was probably my introduction to the to the world of bird hunting. Yeah, right. Because I met you on a meat eater podcast, so this is it's all coming back full circle. So that was the first podcast I ever did, um, and I don't even know if I knew about podcasts before then. I was about you know five or six years um, late on the jump there, but um, since then, um, yeah, I love them, love to listen to them, and love to record them. So. Um, yeah. So now we've got you here. Well, so tell me about the fishing thing, because obviously when we were on the meat eater show, we were still talking primarily fishing and obviously literature, but I'm assuming you were fishing before you started hunting. Yes. I started fishing. Um, I was a, like a young kind of rabid angler. I mean, I grew up in this, um, like I said, a post-industrial um Wasteland is probably not the right way to put it. It was actually um there was there were little pockets of wilderness or 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 woods um everywhere. You know, um we found ourselves most often on like golf course ponds or um you know little lakes situated um in condominium developments um or most often in this um, this little river called the Red Cedar that was a tributary of the Grand River, which flowed out to Lake Michigan. And it had this resident population of smallmouth bass, rock bass, pike, and then um, these incredible runs of, of steelhead and salmon that came um, up from Lake Michigan um, quite a ways, you know, into the center of the state. And... Um, we were, of course, as kids, just completely infatuated with these um, with these anadromous fish, and um, and so that was kind of my my start as a um, as a young angler. And then over the years, um, I met some folks who lived um, 
or who had summer places up in northern Michigan. And I ended up working for this wonderful guy named Rusty Gates um, at Gates Asaba Lodge, this famous um, um, famous dry fly lodge situated on the holy water. Of Was that his real name? Rus- Rusty Gates? Yeah. Calvin was his first name, but everyone called him Rusty. Um, and this you know, um, the Osable was an incredibly fertile, fertile river. It still is, um, uh, amazing hatches. And like, you know, all of the, um, the old guard, like Ernie Schwebert and Swisher and Richards and, um, all those folks would come and, um, and fish and stay and, and write chapters in their books about, um, uh, you know, about the river and about the hatches. Um, and so Rusty had basically this, um, this real soft spot in his heart for me and, and another buddy who um, was equally as obsessed as I was. And he would just hire us on in the summer to, to, to do everything from, you know, tie flies on the spot to run shuttles, to guide the occasional trip that he had forgot to put in the books. You know, I, I can remember often like sitting at the, the desk, the fly tying desk, which was my kind of station in the shop and someone would come in and say, hey, Rusty, you know, it's it's Jim Ford from, from downstate. Nice to see you. Um, we're excited for our trip today. And Rusty would kind of glance over in the book and, and look. And, and then he'd kind of shoot a little wink my way, like, this is your shot, kid. I forgot to put this one in the book, you know. And um, and so that was my introduction to guiding. And um, But also, like, in many ways... Um, literature too, fishing, fishing literature. I mean, I can remember, um, there was a huge library, um, in Rusty's cabin that was situated on Big Creek and he had everything there, you know, everything from, from the old, um, uh, you know, Marinero books, like in the ring of the rise to, um, to like the latest Jim Harrison poetry collection. And so, um, I sat, um, I read a lot, you know, sat by the fire, um, reading and, and, um, and fishing and, um, earning money as a cabin painter or, um, whatever, whatever it took back then. So, um, that was my introduction into to the fishing world. I'm assuming you were graduated at that time. Were you in high school or were no, you I was in high-, high school? Yeah. I would spend oh, some, really? mm-hmm. um, and then, and then the first couple of summers of, um, um, of college. And then I ended up out here, um, in the West, um, in, in Bozeman, I actually got a job coaching soccer. I had, um, I'd played soccer in college and, um, this buddy that I played with, he knew that I was like crazy about fishing. And he said, Hey, my dad might have a job for you in Bozeman, Montana, um, coaching soccer. Do you think, um, would you want it? And I said, yeah, my car is packed now. Like, let's go. Um, and so that's how I ended up in Bozeman and then migrated over to Twin Bridges um, for uh, for my first guiding gig. Um, I had made some connections from Michigan. Do you do you know Annette McLean from Winston Rods? Does that ring a you know what I know of, obviously, because she's just incredible, but um, I don't know her personally. I'd love, I need to actually podcast her. So if you have a contact, please feel free to send it over. She's, you know, she was the legend and um, she was actually the only person I knew in, in that whole area uh, of Twin. And I moved there anyway, 
on kind of a lark. Um, and because I could find, I found this little garage apartment for 200 bucks a month on the Jefferson river. And I thought, well, you know, at least it won't be expensive to live here. And, um, then I went knocking on, you know, shop doors. I had, a um, a rickety forerunner and a, and a pretty shitty, um, clack of craft 14 footer that miraculously never sank. Um, and, um, and at one point, this guy, Tom Harmon, who was, who was a great guy, um, owned a little fly shop on the Ruby River. He said, you know, um, I, you, you, you certainly talk like you know what you're doing, but um, do you know anyone in the area that I could use as a reference? And um, I said, well, I know Annette McLean over at Winston. And Tom just lit up and said, well, if you know Annette, that's good enough for me. And um, that was it. So. Um, that was kind of my migration over to, um, over to Montana. I, there's, there was a, oh, um, there was a year of teaching inner city, um, English, uh, in public schools in Chicago. There was a six month, um, foray into, um, I'll call it journalism with quotes around journalism. I worked for the Idaho Statesman down in Boise. Um, and and that was, that was pretty much it. That's the path. All right. So hang on. The first guiding gig, where was that then? That was in Michigan? Um, well, those were, I, I can't call them official guide days because um, I was, you know, a pinch hitter at best. Um, that was like, you know, if you were, if you were calling someone off the bench, you had been calling like into the locker room to the guy who was, um, you know, picking up the the towels or something like that. Um, so my first real guiding was out of Twin Bridges in, in Montana. Um, on the Big Hole, on the Beeves, on the Jefferson, on the Madison, um, those great rivers down there that were... Um, I mean, the fishing is still good in our in in Montana, but I, I can't imagine how good it was back then. Given the fact that I knew I knew absolutely nothing, you know, um, about guiding, and all I remember is we, you know, we put on an olive woolly bugger and we stripped it all morning and and caught a pile of them, and then we through an L care caddis or a stimulator or, or some parachute Adams derivation and, um, and caught them all afternoon. And then we, you know, looked like heroes every day. So, um, I'm sure there were tough days, but boy, the fishing was, was insane. So how long did that all last for? Mm -hmm. So I guided down out of twin for, for two or three years, met some great characters. Um, Glenn Brackett at um, uh, at Winston had just moved over to to his own bamboo shop, um, and um, and then I came up here to Missoula um, to grad school, and I thought um, in poetry, and I thought that I would probably um, you know work for a couple of years in school, um, guide in the summers and then take a teaching job somewhere else. I didn't think that, um, ever that I would end up guiding for, um, for 25 years, which is 
where I am now. I think 24 or 25 years. Um, Wait, are you still, you're still guiding? I'm still guiding like 40, 40, 45 days a year. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. The summers are too, I mean, they're too easy. You know, the, the, um, the days are too easy to pass up on. And really, um, as you know, I mean, at, at a certain point in your career, you're just going fishing with your friends. And, um, it's a little bit like, like summer camp. I kind of envision it that way. Um, if I, if I had a summer camp somewhere, it it would be, um, it would be here and they would, these folks would come visit and, um, we'd have a wonderful week and then they'd say goodbye and we would go about our years, you know? Um, so, um, you know, it was about 90, let's see, 99. I was in grad school through 2001. And then I, then I picked up guiding up, up here in Missoula on the Blackfoot, Bitterroot, Rock Creek, the Clark Fork. Um, and tried basically at that point to, um, to guide in the summers, um, and then write all winter. And that worked for a while. Um, I mean, I was able to, to salt away enough, um, to keep us afloat during the winter. Mary, my wife is a teacher and she always had, you know, steady income, uh, during the school year. And, um, and then of course, you know, um, well, the West gets more expensive. Um, the, we start to have kids, we, we get a mortgage and suddenly, um, I find my, found myself, um, um, turning away from poetry, not turn, not turning away from poetry so much as dipping my, um, my oars, if you will, into, um, into the nonfiction world and starting to write freelance that way. Um, and then also teaching. Um, and so, um, for, for the, for the better part of, um, you know, the last maybe 15 years or so, I've been kind of splitting the years between the classroom, um, the desk and, and the boat. Um, and I think now, um, after many years of struggle and kind of fighting that, um, multifaceted lifestyle, now it just strikes me as kind of the way, way of things, you know? And, um, it's like, um, June rolls around and the school year's done and, um, it's time to, um, it's time to cut the, the barley hay, if you will. And, um, you know, um, so that's, that's kind of how the, be- the better part of the last 15 years or so have gone. And, um, and now I guess I've, I've been fortunate enough to publish, um, a couple of nonfiction books and really am, um, enjoying that part of um of life of of being able to write books writing them on contract and um um and seeing them come into the world you know uh this new book that's just out the river you touch is um i was opening up the box the other day and i was kind of tearing into the box of books this is a, a month or so when i got the first copies um and I had to stop myself and and just say, wait a minute, like you have to enjoy this moment. This doesn't happen every day, you know. You don't get to pick up the first um, the first copies of of your hardcover um, every day. I mean, if you're lucky, if you're you know, if you're Jim Harrison um, 
or Louise Erdrich, it, it happened every year or two, but um, for most of us, it's, it's every several years at best. So um, anyhow, um, yeah, I mean, um, I feel like we've settled into the West over the last couple of decades um, just in time to watch it change very dramatically again, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's going through a shift for sure. Before before we go down that road and talk about your latest book, why did you go to school for poetry? What was it about poetry that really enticed you or that you found enticing? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so when, as an undergrad, I went to a little school, a little school in Michigan and had these uh, uh, some amazing writing professors um, and really um, a fascinating fantastic writing program at this small school. And um, so I applied to graduate schools in both fiction and poetry. I didn't, I wasn't writing any nonfiction then. I mean, except for essays for class, um, which I was always trying to turn into a, <laughs> a piece of fiction. Um, and I, I was accepted um in both genres. And I erroneously thought that I could um, teach myself to write prose or fiction. You know, I thought I could just teach myself by, by reading a lot of fiction and, um, but that the craft of poetry, um, the prosody, the, you know, um, the meter, the structure, the rhyme schemes, all of that was something that I needed to be taught. And, um, in that sense, I was right, but I was wrong in the sense that I wasn't able to teach myself how to write, um, how to write fiction. So um, I've got three books of poems now, and I'm I'm still writing the occasional poem. Um, I love this line from the great Polish poet um, Szczesław Milo. She says something like, um, "Poetry should be written only under great duress." And um, when when that um, when that occasion strikes me, last year I lost a dear friend who's a musician, Billy Conway. Um, I felt like I was flooded um, with with poems, and and I wrote a dozen poems within um, the period of a a couple of weeks, um, and hadn't written any for for a year, really leading up to that. So um, yeah, I still have such a great love for poetry. Um, but I find that um, the discipline of nonfiction and of writing long form is so consuming that I don't really have um, the the brain space or the bandwidth to do both. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Do you find yourself thinking in poetry? I mean, walking down the street and seeing something that's inspiring and you just can't help your brain but describe it in poetic terms? Yeah, I mean, I think in images... And, and I think in, in sounds, right? So that's um, poetry, like an intellectual um, and um, emotional complex in an instant of time, I think was um, uh, T.S. Eliot's line, uh, definition of an image. So yeah, like absorbing things in images, but then also reconstituting them in musical language. I often, you know, hear myself doing that. And I think that is what you mean by thinking in poetry. Well, you actually just kind of, 
you just reminded me about something I'd read recently about human beings, not all thinking the same, obviously, but that some of us, I think it's 50, maybe it's 40%. I can't remember exactly the stats. I don't want to sound like an idiot here um, on purpose, but that not everybody thinks in words or not everybody has an inner voice. And that was really interesting to me because in my head, there's a person there. I mean, it's myself and she's my best friend and we talk all the time and I'm happy to be alone in the bush for months at a time because she keeps me company and there's constant conversation going on up there. In fact, to the point where when somebody starts speaking to me and I'm in the middle of a conversation in my head, it's actually a bit offensive because they've just interrupted this amazing conversation I'm having. (laughs) But not everybody has that, excuse me, and some people think in imagery, some people think um, in a little bit more of maybe an abstract way. Have you heard of this before? Does this, any of this resonate with you? I mean, it makes complete sense, actually. Um, do you have a voice up there, or do you do you primarily see images? Well, I definitely have that voice. Um, it's most evident to me, as you say, when I'm in the woods or on or or on the river by myself or at the desk. Um, you know, when I'm wading into. Um, to a, to a piece of work. I mean, um, I remember an old teacher of mine used to say, poetry is easy. You just have to be able to listen and write at the same time, you know? And I think what he, he meant, li- listen to that voice that's in your head. Um, but like yesterday I spent, um, chasing birds around with my, my dog Zeke, who's a, um, who's a setter, an English setter. And, I love being by myself because I am completely, I, I, I feel absolutely comfortable talking to myself the entire time. Occasionally I'll mutter something to him, um, but mostly I'm just talking to myself, you know? Um, and, and sometimes I'm, you know, arguing with myself a little bit like you should go up that, um, you know, you should go up that little gulch. Like you found birds there before. No, that was when it was wet out and there was snow, you know, and, <laughs> This is what my brain does back and, forth. and and it's words, it's words, right? You hear it, right? Yeah. Yeah. By thinking in images, I mean, like I absorb the world in images. So like, um, you know, yesterday, for instance, like uh, as the day was ending, it was very cloudy and, and except there was this one absolutely luminous, brilliant sunspot on, um, on a bare hill Um and I just thought to myself, like, that's the image from the day that I take. And and it becomes kind of my my writerly charge then to how do I how do I render that right in sufficient language? Um, so by thinking in images, I guess I mean absorbing the world that way. Yeah, I definitely yeah. think in words probably like um, the rest of us. I'm looking something up right now here. Here. So it's called a. Hang on, I had it's called an inner monologue. And not everyone has it. Isn't it hard to imagine that some folks don't don't have it? I don't understand. And that's why I'm asking I was actually secretly hoping that you didn't have it because I'd love for you to enlighten me and explain because I just don't understand. 
But um, I spoke to a few people who don't understand what I'm talking about when I say that I have this voice in my head. I think they think I'm schizophrenic or something. <laughs> but um, but yeah, I'd love to hear from somebody who, or from anyone listening to this episode in the comments about the inner monologue, if, if anyone doesn't have that. I'd love, I just am fascinated by how our brains work. I think it's so interesting. I know. It's amazing. Um, I mean, I guess it's not surprising that they, that all of our brains don't work the same, but it also explains a lot too, um, with regard to, you know, what we, we value or don't value. As far as poetry goes, because I, I also want to pick your brain about the whole fiction thing, but as far as poetry goes, does it sell? I mean, that's obviously no. I think it's the first thing we all think. No, no, <laughs> no, no, no. So what, what is the reason for putting out a book by it, uh, you know, about it? Obviously I know why the author would do it, but why would a publishing house take it on? I think, um, you know, there are several houses in, in, um, in the country now that are still publishing great poetry, um, as kind of their mission. You know, um, and a few that are publishing nonfiction poetry and fiction, but take their poetry list very, very seriously. Um, And in essence, I think um, they see it as their, um, you know, their artistic calling. Yeah, their duty to to continue to put it into the world. Um, And I'm glad they do, you know. I'm not sure. Like, I just, um, it was a year ago, Jim Harrison's um, collected poems came out. So the Copper Canyon Press collected every poem that he'd ever published. Um, And it was 930 pages. So he wrote that book um, while publishing another 35 books of fiction and nonfiction you know, um, and poetry, um, poetry should be published precisely because it doesn't sell, right? It, um, it navigates kind of, um, outside of the milieu, if you will. And, um, what it's trafficking with is, um, you know, its ultimate dialogue is with the silence of the page or, um, you know, it asks the question, um, if it, it can ask the question, who am I talking to when I'm talking to myself? Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, only poetry can do that. Right. I mean, yes, you could approach it, um, uh, through character and fiction or through, um, you know, scientific dialogue and nonfiction, but from a, an existential or philosophical point of view, like it really can only be broached via poetry. And, um, and I think also like poems do what only poems can do, right? Um, they, we as a society, because of whatever, bad English teachers over the years were were taught to decipher them for meaning, but really I think, um, they're, they're way closer to like, um, 
jazz music or, um, you know, a glass of wine. Um, if I poured you a glass of like, you know, um, Domaine Tampier Rosé, um, I wouldn't ever ask you like, what does this glass of wine mean? You know, I would symbolism say, here. Right. I would say, like, what do you taste in it? What do you smell? What do you appreciate? Like, where does that and where do where do those um aspects come from? So um yeah, I mean poetry is um I think it's something to aspire to, you know. Um uh not just poems, um, but poetry, right? I mean, that way of paying attention to the world. Um, without any ulterior motive, um, just um, uh, to absorb it and then try to reconstitute it in language that enacts experience is a um, it's a it's a practice, right? It's not a, um, um, it's not something that um, necessarily always has an outcome at the end. Yeah. And I think I, I do like the simplicity in that. Do you know anything on, about the history there? And I, I know this is a fishing podcast, so I need to be mindful of that. But I'm always curious because obviously Shakespearean times, right? Everything's so poetic. And I'm just very curious as to when that started to sw- uh, you know veer off course and when poetry ended up being the minority in the writing world, when once upon a time it seemed to be the primary you know, form of literature. Am I wrong in my thinking there? I did not no, go to school think- for this. You're, you're, I think you're right. I mean, um, and in many ways, like, um, poetry is first probably a, a bodily art, you know, we feel when we're, we're, when we're reading and reciting a poem, we feel it in our body before we register it, its meaning in our brain, right? We feel those, the vowels, the rhythms, um, the sonic, um, pleasures, the cadences, all of that. We, you know, um, I mean, you, you mentioned Shakespeare, like, um, this is, this is that time of year. Thou mayest in me behold when yellow leaves or none or few do hang upon those boughs, which shake against the cold, bare ruined choirs where late the sweet birds sang. Right. Um, I mean, that's, uh, I think that's sonnet 73, and I'm not sure, I'm pretty sure he wasn't writing about Aspens, but um, as you know, he very well could have been, right? Um, and so, yeah, for years or for centuries, um, listeners, readers of poetry ingested those rhythms and um, memorized them. And so those poems lived, you know, in the body rather than lived on the page. Um, and at some point, um, it, you know, it became uh adopted by absorbed by usurped by the academy and it became you know an academic um endeavor i guess um not 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 all poetry but i mean there's still plenty of poetry that's touching um outside that realm but for the most part um yeah even if you go back to like um i mean the the 50s um 50s early 60s like uh, robert frost would on the cover of time magazine you know um sylvia plath um 
Elizabeth Bishop, like, you know, those poets were, were thought of as, as national treasures, not, um, obscure, uh, kind of academic folk. Right. Yeah. It's interesting. So how, how hard is it for you to accept the way of the world right now where, long form conversation is slowly dying, although it's probably being adopted now because I think people are tired of sound bites. But it has it been hard for you to watch the changes? You'd mentioned the changes economically and living wise in, in Montana, but just as far as the arts go and writing goes and even news articles, I know for me I want to bash my head against the wall reading newspapers these days. Um, how hard has it been for you to stomach writing in today's world? It's interesting you ask that because um, I'm so hardwired. I did. I've lived this way for so long that I can't really do anything else, you know? Um, I mean, I'd love to. Um, I'd love to learn how to be a more competent, like, um, communicator in, like, in the market, but I don't really know how to do it. Um, what I find, though, more and more is that people um, are craving a certain density of experience that they can get through the written word and they can't get through like a little soundbite or um, a, a news article with quotes around it or, or, or whatever. Or even an audiobook. I've got lo- I do lots of audiobooks. So my friends are a lot of my friends simply cannot retain information that way. They need to see it in writing, which is great. Yeah. Um, fortunately there, (laughs) yeah, I mean, fortunately there are still, um, old folks around like us that that need to read. Um, yeah, it was fascinating. You know, um, this summer, our son who's 18, um, decided he was going to read, um, my new book in galleys, like in the pre-pub form. And, he he read it and absorbed it and loved it um and i'm not sure it wasn't like the first book he'd read outside of school in in several years you know um i loved that notion that he has all had all these um potential distractions at hand you know i mean look I can't get off Instagram myself. How in the hell are these poor kids supposed to get off it? Right. And, and, um, and I'm not even getting anything from it that I find enriching. I just think it's like hilarious. And I, um, you know, I want to see a dog do a flip on a skateboard or some stupid like that. So, um, I do think back to your question though, that, um, I mean, sure. There's a certain, um, worry that people won't buy books, but I think more and more people are actually buying books and depending on them for um, a certain level of connection that they can't get anywhere else. I mean, my publisher, Milkweed Editions, um, publishes a book called Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer. Um, And that book sold a million copies during the pandemic, um, which, I don't know, you know, if the pandemic doesn't happen, if it ever sells that many copies. But at a certain point, this a readership felt like 
that book was giving them meaning where nothing else would. Um, and, and so, and other books as well, um, did, did exceptionally well during that period of time. So, um, my, my take is that there will always be people who, um, who want to see the world reflected, um, in the written word and want to hold books and, um, you know, I almost feel like we're like society and the the way of the world now is funneling us into books because social media often has little depth. I mean, a lot of it's just clickbait. It's what, eight seconds for, to grab someone's attention. If, I mean, even when, when a 30 second clip is too long, to hold someone's attention span, you know that something's wrong. So social media is dumbing down. I was watching something the other day about movies and with the cost of movies and how expensive it is, they have to ensure that it's going to sell because there's so many people involved. So the depth and, and the thought in movies is starting to dissipate. It's almost as if everything is pushing us into, because a book, yes, it costs money, but really at the end of the day, it's one person sitting there within themselves. I mean, it doesn't cost a lot of money and we can find all of those things that we're lacking in every other form. So I feel like we're definitely getting pushed down into this funnel of books. I think there's going to be an uprise, but maybe that's just wishful thinking. No, I think you're right. I mean, I remember um, the novelist Philip Roth saying something about 10 years ago. He said, I don't know why you would want to become a fiction writer nowadays, given what uh, film can, what can happen on film, basically. Um, you know, what we can do with cinema, he was saying is, is astounding. And so, um, why would you even want to bother with the written word? But I think that's almost reversed now. Um, as you're saying, um, all of that world is getting dumbed down and we're going to keep going back, um, to the written word for, um, for reminders uh, about um, what it is to be human and for um, ways to expand our notion of the human experience and, um, and to slow down life, you know, so that we, we can appreciate it and, um, and dig deeper in. Coming up, Chris and I continue our conversation. Again, thank you to South Dakota for supporting this episode of Anchored. For more than 100 years, pheasant hunting has been a storied South Dakota tradition. Now, for the next century, South Dakota is focused on expanding pheasant hunting's horizons, welcoming more sportswomen to the field, giving them a greater voice in the hunting community. That's a legacy to stand the test of time. Find more information at huntthegreatestsd.com. Um, speaking of digging deeper in, tell me about this new book. What's it about? Well, um, it's... Um, and do a shameless plug. Tell me the name and all the things where people can buy it. So it's called The River You Touch, um, Making a Life on Moving Water. And um, it it was originally conceived as a love song, really, uh, for moving water. Um, and And I wanted to... Uh, in many ways, like collect um, the seemingly disparate, but what I found out were very braided um, stories and lives and themes from from twenty some years on the river, um, and and then um, I started the, the narrative, and as my buddy um, 
Jeffrey Focal, the musician, reminded me. He said he read an early draft, and he said, "You know, every every good love love song succeeds on the element of doubt." Um, and so I started, you know, playing with that notion, like what, um, what in my world, in my orbit, was preventing me from interacting with the world with the same sense of like wonder and vigor that I had um, when I was whatever, 18, 16, kind of back to, to what we were talking about at the kickoff. Um, and so I started digging around and really um, it dawned on me that um, that sense of wonder had kind of dissipated from my life. Uh, in many ways. I mean, um, you know, the more we learn, the harder it is to retain that. Um, and I think we're, we're living in a kind of, um, over, um, we're saturated with information and with every little bit of information, um, we lose a little bit of our heart, I think. Um, and so I started basically writing this book and, um, as kind of, um, well, a yin and yang, a back and forth between um, the wilds of the Western rivers and the kind of domestic life of, of raising kids in, in rural Montana. And, um, and so, as, as you would imagine, my wife and partner Mary is, is the main character and definitely um, kind of the hero of the book. But um, as I searched my journals of over 15 years, um, I started to find these little moments, these little signposts, um, these glimmers of kind of hope and wonder that I had seen in our children. Um, and in many ways recognized that they, um, had kind of reconstituted in me over the course of 15 or so years, um, this potential for, um, falling in love again, unabashed love with the landscape. Um, and I recognized too that, you know, without that sense of wonder, we, we lose the instinct to kind of protect those places that inspire it in us. Right. Um, and so I began to kind of, um, write towards that. And throughout it, there, there are lots of, um, Oh, um, river yarns, we'll call them, you know, um, kind of, uh, indelible clients, um, like this character Peg, who, um, I, I knew and guided through three different husbands, all of which she outlived as they died, different tragic deaths and her connection, you know, with the water, um, and, and kind of the mystery around it, uh, was fun to articulate, um, characters like like Jim Harrison who was a friend of mine moments of um of near tragedy um following or actually leading a um a guide trip down the river on the same day that a, a guide boat behind me flipped and lost a client to a log jam um all kinds of, of river yarns kind of tie together and um I think uh, bring to life th those themes that I mentioned earlier. Wow! So it's a so it's 
not a fiction. It's a, it's your life. Is it it is. Yeah. Wow. How ex- exciting. Was it terrifying to write it? Because no. I feel like, I almost feel like you get one chance. And so I know for me, I get analysis paralysis because I, you got, you got one shot and you don't want to leave anything out. There's all, there's just so much pressure. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't terrifying to write, but it's a little bit terrifying to have in the world now, you know? Um, um, and it's, it's, it's garnered some great critical reception early on, which, um, which is wonderful and takes the sting out of it a little, but I'm, I'm getting more and more messages um, from folks like some, some like I, I, I left out a moment or two ago, like at one point um, due to um, many different um, factors, I, I went through a pretty deep clinical depression and it was only um, really um, the rivers and our children that, that dug me out of that pit. Um, so I've, I've gotten a lot of like, why didn't you tell me, you know, or, um, or I'm, I'm so sorry. Are you okay? That kind of stuff. And I mean, most of what was written about occurred several eight or nine years ago. And so, um, there's a sense of having some distance on it. Um, but yeah, it's terrifying in that sense. Um, when I'm at the desk writing it, I don't feel like the same person who is the character in the book. Um, so there's that. Um, that might be a lie that I tell myself to kind of open that that door up, you know. Um, but um, yeah, you asked another question. I I was about to answer it. Um, just about um, the pressure of writing about your life and not being able to leave anything out or missing the opportunity to speak on it. Yeah, I think. Well, I mean, um, you may never write another book, but you have to tell yourself there's room for that in the next book, you know? Well, that helps to alleviate some pressure. Yeah. Did did writing about the depression help you to analyze the depression? Did it help yeah. to, to heal the depression? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it did. Very much so. I don't think, I mean, I'd written about it a lot in my poems, but not until um, this book did I um, feel that it was behind me, you know, Um and I, I knock on wood when I say that, um, but I think I was able to kind of analyze um, the factors which had brought it into being. You know, um, some of them, some of them outside factors, and some of them um, factors that I had control over that I wasn't, um, you know, um, attending to quite uh, quite the right way. You know, um, and um, I think. Um, you know, there are things that we know deeply that we can be cynical about and then turn them into cliches and then our, our kind of, um, 
callousness renders those truths less potent in our lives. I'm speaking of like um, the healing possibility of the natural world, right? I mean, you know that, I know that. Um, you wouldn't live the life that you live if that weren't the case, right? Um, but it's all it's also kind of a cliche, right, to, to talk about it. And so um, part of this, part of writing this memoir, the discovery at the end of it was that um, if, if I had been listening to the language that the natural world is kind of speaking, um, that entire time, I probably wouldn't have ended up where I ended up. Um, I mean, and by listening, I don't mean like some something like existentially woo-woo or whatever. I mean like conversing with via fly rod waist deep in a river or boots, you know, trudging up a mountain or um, calluses on hands from rowing a boat. Like th those are the things that put us in direct contact with, um, with the natural world. And, and it ultimately is healing because it's, it's bringing us back to our, um, our true and actual self. Right. Um, I mean, I love this old quote from, um, the old uh, monk Ryokin, he says, um, what is the self rambling in the mountains, enjoying the waters, you know? Um, and so, um, do you know, did you ever have John Larison on your podcast? Um, he's an old steelhead guy from um, Oregon, but he wrote a great novel called Whiskey When We're Dry. Um, and John read an early draft of this book, um, and he said, man, I'm so glad to know that um, ultimately the voices of the natural world won out over the voices in your head, you know? Um, so I can't remember what your question was. Oh, what I'm, I'm just, it's really interesting to me that you were able to get it all on paper and be able to analyze while you were writing. Yeah, I wasn't able to analyze while I was writing, but afterward I was able to, yeah, while I was writing it, it was, it was horrific, you know, um, it was, it's, it was, um, it wasn't fun really to go back and relive those experiences, um, in writing and to, you know, to, in many ways, try to amplify them. Right. That is what's stopping me right now. I'm trying to relive in my writing a lot of these things and it's just too painful. I end up putting it down. How, so how do you push, do you have any advice for writers on how to push past that? You have to, um, have faith that, um, no, it's not even faith. Like you have to know for a fact that someone out there is going to read your book and go, this, um, help me, transcend whatever awful or terrible thing that I was going through. 
Um, because there is, there's someone out there, you know, there's, who knows, there's thousands of people, there's millions of people. Um, but there's certainly one, you know, there's one person. Um, and so, um, I think also distancing, like you have to tell yourself the lie that you're not that person, you know, you're, um, you're not the person, um, you're not not writing about you're not the character, you know, there's the author, narrator, character. They're all three different, um, three different things. And so, um, I think like whatever you have to do, I mean, um, if your boat was, um, if your boat was blue, like make it yellow in the book or something like that, like some device that allows you to convince yourself, um, is it easier to write third person than first person in a situation like that? Can you get the same emotion across or evoke the same emotion that way? I actually wrote a lot of these passages in third person and then changed changed them to first because they were true to my life. Um, but generally, generatively, it was way easier to write it in the third, for sure. So where do you stand now? Where are you at now? Because you're still relatively young. You've got some books under your belt. Your kids are older. How are you feeling, you know, mentally and, and just in general about your life moving forward? Yeah. I mean, strangely enough, I feel great. Um, Cause you sound great. You look great. Everything about you feels like, I feel like you're just oozing this awesome energy. Even from the second you hopped online here, I feel it. Um, no, I but, feel so so blessed to be to have kind of um you know been um shown the way out of the woods you know um and i don't i don't pretend to imagine life will be like smooth sailing at all um i don't think that at all um but I feel really fortunate to have, um, have my health, you know, um, to have my mental health, to have an amazing partner who's, um, probably more excited about this book being in the world than I am. Um, and, and three beautiful children and to have like, um, I think, um, you know, a vocation at this point in life, I'm 46 and I'm, I feel like I'm just kind of getting started, um, writing books. I'm going to write more. Um, and I might not have, you know, um, the coffers padded as, as it were in terms of, um, the bank accounts, but, um, I have, um, <laughs> like, um, you know, two out of three, if you will. Um, uh, and that's, um, it, that's enough to get you in the hall of fame. I mean, if you're batting over 600, um, and so I do, I feel, um, I got really, really sick um, during the first wave of COVID. Um, I ended up in bed for like 12 or 13 days. Um, from COVID? Yeah, from COVID. Um, and I thought a couple of times during that, you know, some of those late middle of the night, like, shaking sweating sessions i don't know if you were able to avoid it or not but um i thought okay 
I mean, I knew I was, I wasn't going to die. I kind of knew that, but there were a few moments where I thought like, this shit's pretty serious. Um, I'm glad, um, I'm glad my affairs are in order, you know? Um, and I, I thought if I, if I'm able to like, um, be healthy after this, um, I'm going to have a new outlook on things and I'm going to, um, I'm going to write books and I'm going to spend time in the woods and on the river. And, um, and, and so like, I guess having, um, uh, endured that, um, has made me feel like pretty damn lucky. Yeah, no doubt. Is that what, I I don't want to be too intrusive, but it's kind of what I do here. I just, I'm wondering about how and why you became, became so, um, unwell, you know, mentally was the depression, were you able to link it at all to time being taken away from being outside? Um, no, if it's, too, per- if it's too personal, just no, I just wrote a book about it. Um, okay. So here's what happened. I mean, um, like we had three kiddos, um, young, young, um, I made some career decisions that were, uh, I made a career decision that was kind of suspect. Um, I'm, we, I took a job in Michigan teaching creative writing at a arts, a really amazing um, boarding arts academy. And um, I thought it was going to be like my dream job because I'd grown up there and, and I'd revered this place forever. Um, but when I got there, I realized the job, like there's the old quote, like you can't go to Paris anymore. It's not there, you know? Um, and in many ways, this school was like that. Like it had been an art school love legendary status. And then by the time I got there, it was just like a boarding school with um, lots of middle management and, and provosts and, and all that um, fun stuff that kind of, suck the soul out of a place um but we you know we'd up up and moved from montana we um for for financial reasons i guess you could say as well um and i mean i probably was drinking too much as well um and all like the uprooting, the financial issues, the the kind of um, you know day to day fretting that you do with um, with young children, you know um, mm-hmm. that that just compounds, and then um, and then just not knowing really um, what my place in the world was anymore. Um, because I had spent the, you know, the previous 15 or 17 years in Montana and had, had rooted myself here. Um, so all of that really, um, spun a pretty vicious cycle and, um, you know, my old friend used to say deliverance is always near though. We can never see it. Um, and, um, I, I couldn't, I couldn't get out of it. You know, I spent a lot of time actually fished a lot at night. 
this particular winter, I would go out to the mouth of this um, this river in Michigan um, and fish for steelhead, winter steelhead, when they would come in. Um, and there's a, uh, a passage in the book where I'm um, I'm talking with this guy. His name in real life is Mike Delp. He's a, he's a beautiful human being. Um, his uh, his Instagram handle is River Fool, um, and he's kind of just you know he's like an old river monk. And um, he's driving me around, and um, he says, um, "You should know this place if you're going to survive the winter around here." By the way, winters in Michigan are um, horrid. They're horrendous. I mean, and I grew up with 18 of them, so I should have remembered, but they are just like absolutely, completely soul-sucking. Um, and he says this funny thing. Uh, he says, um, you have to be clinically insane to want to live in Michigan in the winter. Um, and he, and he, he kind of spreads his arms around. He says, half of this county is clinically insane, you know? Um, and uh, he's talking about like, you know, Tra the Traverse City area, which is a, an amazing town. Traverse is just a beautiful, beautiful place. Um, anyway, he drives me out to this this bay where um, where this river empties in, and um, and and we get talking about um, our old mutual friend Jim Harrison, and we start talking about like kind of our favorite lines. And um, uh, let's see if I can remember. One is um, our minds buzz like bees but not like the bees minds. Um, and, uh, another one is, um, we are more than dying flies in a shit house, but we are that too. Uh, so we're kind of bouncing these lines back and forth. And, um, and then he says like my year old daughter's red robe hangs from the doorknob shouting stop. And I say to him, yeah, that's from Letters to Yasinin. And Letters to Yasinin is a book of poems. This is back to your question, like, why why we publish books of poems anymore? Yasinin is, um, is a collection of letter poems that Harrison wrote during a deep depression to the Russian poet Sergei Yasinin, who had hanged himself, died. Um, Yasinin was uh, married to Isadora Duncan and um, has some weird, had a, a pretty amazing life. But anyway, um, we kind of broached in the scene, we kind of broached the subject of this book. But that that moment in the poem, in Harrison's poem, my year old daughter's red robe hangs from the doorknob shouting, stop. She's speaking to him you know, or her robe is speaking to him, like, stop this, tor this torture, this self-torture, you know, this depression that you're going through, this kind of um, whatever is causing you to, to stay um, in this, um, you know, in this self-destructive moment, stop. Um, not that one can control depression. That's not what she's saying. Well, by, that's not what the image is saying. But um we so we we go down this road and then we kind of dodge it and of course you know we're men so the fishing conversation picks back up and um we repress our feelings and and start talking about like you know winter steelhead so i spent a lot of time that winter um out um out at the bay and um god some just like you know 
some miraculous things happened. Um, miraculous by which I mean like, you know, watching um, a full moon set and on the bay, the moment like a six pound hen steelhead strikes and then, you know, dances through the moonlight, that kind of thing. Um, and this this place that I spent hours and hours um was a really soft place you know it was it was a bay the river you know kind of last gasp into the bay and um and it was quiet and i i mean i spent a ton of time there uh sometimes it snowed all night sometimes it it you know the wind blew but um i don't know a certain um calm kind of rose up out of that place and began to to be a balm in my life. And so in that winter, a friend of mine came, um, Deborah Magpie Erling is her name. She's an amazing uh, Salish writer from Montana. She wrote a book called Perma Red. She has another one coming out called The Lost Journals of Sacagawea, which is told in the voice of um, Sacagawea. Sign yeah, I totally want to read that. Good. You'll love it. It's, I'm actually reading it now in galleys. It's absolutely stunning. Um, but um, so she came to speak at the school where I was and um, she said, uh, it's great to see Chris. Um, we all miss him back in Montana. But not only that, and she kind of turned to me, she said, the land misses him. The land itself misses him. And that was an absolutely like, mind-blowing phrase to hear you know um and in that sense like she was kind of rescuing me and showing a way out of the woods you know with her with her words um and i mean i love that for for two reasons in the book as as you'll see like it's a community around the narrator that saves him from you know, from his own torture. Um, and uh, I love what a reviewer said really early on that, um, this fall, like, um, this book torches the narrative of the single solitary, um, you know, dude conquering the mountain or, or what have you, um, because it embraces what community can do for all of us, you know? So anyway, Deborah, um, she by by way of you know a simple um simple phrase she and of course i don't think she knew what she was doing at that moment right she just happened to say those things um and i began to rethink things you know um i mean the land is communicating with us like it is of course it is right i mean all of the time but we're so um we're so tuned to our, our own frequencies or the world's frequencies that we um, we miss what it's saying, right? I mean, mostly it's probably saying pay attention, but, um, you know, of course, there are way, way deeper things than that. Um, and so kind of late in the book, um, I, I'm out um, picking morels with our youngest, Lily, um, and I start to ponder that notion like, um Deborah's words like how had I been um how had I guided 
on the rivers for 20 years and observed everything so closely and listened, but not understood that, yes, this is true. The landscape is speaking to us, right? Um, and then, like, in kind of double whammy fashion, I realized it's like I was showing our child, you know, what a um, wild strawberry looks like or, um, you know, what mer- what mushrooms to avoid or whatever, that I actually, I was not, I was no longer the guide, right? My children were the guide. They had guided me out of like some very dark warrens of the heart and um, back into connection with um with the living world. And so, um, I'm, uh, you know, sometimes we don't know what we're doing as writers. And that's usually, I think when we're at our best. And so in this scene toward the end of the book, not the, not the final scene, the final scenes of a fishing scene, a bull trout scene. Um, but, um, toward the end of the book in this morel bit, I, I put my daughter Lily on, my shoulders and we walk across this, you know, shallow stream, shallow, uh, you know, side channel. And, um, we forward the stream together and it wasn't until I started reading from this book this fall that I realized that, um, her legs around my neck were the complete, like the anti-image to the noose that hung Yasinin. Oh, wow. Right. So like that actual, that image recurred um, in a, in a totally um, like healing form. Right. Um, And so um, that's cool to me as a writer, because I think to myself, there are a lot of things that the language can lead us to a lot of truths that we didn't know we, um, we had access to. And so, um, I don't know, you, you asked about, um, I think your original question was like, um, how do I feel now? And I think I feel fortunate. I feel really, really fortunate. Um, was it just this crazy reminder for you or this revelation of, Oh my gosh, the land is misses me. I've got this whole relationship that is as you know magnificent as a relationship could be, and it's right here. And all I have to do is open my eyes. Yeah, and yeah. Go outside. I know, and you can't you can't believe you ever forgot, right? Well, how could you forget for a minute, let alone months on end? And um, yeah. Um, I was often so absolutely. Yeah. I mean, dumbfounded really. Yeah. I think it's a relationship all of us at one point or another for, don't forget about, but you know, just every, I'm looking outside because I'm, I'm on a, a forest is behind me here. And it's just, sometimes that, that'll happen. You know, I'll forget it's there. I, I'm too busy looking at the computer. It's right beside me. It's literally right there. And, and then I'll look at it and realize all I have to do is put on my boots and it's what it's literally welcome. I mean, it's, it's just going to wrap its arms around me and take me back in. And, 
Yeah, it's uh, you know I just got back to Canada for the first time uh, a couple months ago. I was there for a couple months, and I mean not back to Canada. I'd been back to Canada since COVID, but I was able to go for my first steelhead trip since COVID. And I got my first steelhead in the last, you know, for the last three years. And I just started crying. I just genuinely forgot. I just, I mean, I had always, I'd spoke about steelhead every day for the last two and a half years, but I just totally forgot. And it was so profound that I, I am not talented enough to find the words to explain it, but it just immediately brought me to tears because I, 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 I had forgotten it, not because it didn't live somewhere in my head, but because I hadn't actually felt it. It hadn't embraced me and, and reminded me that it was there. I love it. You are, you're so talented and absolutely you should write that. Abs- you should totally, totally write that. Um, yeah. Embrace you, your phrase. It embraces us. is so perfect. It does too. I mean, on the cellular level even, right. I mean, it's going to embrace us in the end. It's anyway, I mean, it's the ultimate relationship. It really, it really is. So no, look, I, I am really excited to read your book. I feel awful that I haven't been able to read it yet. No, not it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but I think it actually might be a very timely thing. I think that now that I'm back and settling into the winter, I think that this might be a very, it might be a wonderful time to read your book. So where can people find it? Well, um, it's probably most, um, effectively purchased um at milkweed.org um the river you touch if you just google the river you touch milkweed.org i think that's the easiest way to do it it's also available on the great death star of books amazon of course yeah. i'll um, link the milkweed link on my okay on my great website. that's on and um and really any independent booksellers um nationwide are carrying it um oh goodness you know um i'm on instagram i think it's dombrowski underscore chris you were like one of my first the first people i ever followed because i didn't even know what instagram was until i did that podcast but um at any rate um yes it's available anywhere just google chris dombrowski the river you touch and um and hit me up yeah, cool. I'll link all of this so people can find you. And But I, honestly, you are still so young and so talented. I'm excited to watch what's next for you. And um, is there anything that I've missed in particular that you wanted to address or mention or that you wanted to add? No, this is fantastic. I mean, this is um, a really wonderful conversation, April. And I'm, I'm glad we went um, deeper than I, um, I thought we would. So um, I feel, again... Uh, Yeah, really fortunate to be here with you. It's great. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Thank you for listening. 